Let's bow our heads in prayer. Went to see uh, Les Mis last week. Anybody seen it? Quick show of hands. Yep, good, good. Okay, fantastic. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. Based, of course, on the novel by Victor Hugo. Uh, first published 1865, uh, five volumes, a big old book. Uh, being condensed down into a musical, into a film. Uh, most popular musical uh, to be filmed. More film versions of Les Mis than any other uh, musical. I won't give the whole story away. I won't tell you the whole plot in case you haven't seen it. Go and see it for yourselves. But um, it, it starts off in dramatic fashion. Uh, the opening scene is one of the most dramatic scenes of the whole film. Uh, the directors obviously thought, okay, we need to grab hold of people's attention. I can't show the whole five volumes of the book, so I'm going to get straight into the heart of the action. And so it starts with our hero, uh, Jean Valjean. Uh, he's a prisoner. Uh, he's in a, a kind of army, uh, a prison kind of camp with all the other prisoners, and uh, they're pulling uh, a ship uh, into a dry dock, and the, the, the sea is raging, uh, the ship is falling apart, timbers are crashing, hundreds of prisoners pulling on these huge ropes as they pull this uh, gigantic ship out of the sea and into the dry dock. And of course, overlooking the whole thing is the villain of the piece, Inspector Javert, who for some reason at this time is the kind of prison uh, warder. And he's uh, surveying the scene, looking down on our hero, uh, Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is a prisoner. He stole a loaf of bread, and he's been 20 years in prison. This is the last day of his uh, prison sentence. And uh, the scene ends with uh, Javert, the inspector, telling Jean Valjean that he can go, that he's uh, set free, but he's to be on parole. It's a dramatic scene, and the director's chosen to get straight into the action. This scene tells you, really, everything you need to know about the story and about the film. It tells you it's going to be a musical, because everybody is singing. It tells you it's going to be dramatic. The waves are crashing, and uh, the, the ship is splintering tells you who the goody is, it tells you who the baddie is. Sometimes a good film just grabs hold of you and keeps hold of you all the way to the end. A good story grabs hold of you at the beginning and keeps hold of you all the way to the end. John's Gospel, by any reckoning, is a good story. And in writing uh, this book, uh, the author, Jesus' disciple John, chooses to get in straight at the heart of the action. Uh, This book was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke and Matthew, they start with the story of Jesus' birth. They tell you the story of Jesus' childhood. They give you uh, the background genealogy of who Jesus was. John, he just gets in straight at the action. He gets in straight with the adult Jesus, and he tells you who he is. At the end of his gospel, John writes this. Jesus did many of the miraculous signs, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John has had to choose what he puts in his gospel. 
He's had to choose which stories from the life of Jesus is he going to tell. And he begins with the first miracle of Jesus, the first miraculous sign, turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Because John wants to grab our attention, just as Jesus wanted to grab his uh, disciples' attention. John wants to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, just as Jesus wanted to reveal his heavenly Father to a watching world. This is the first miraculous sign, and verse 11 we read, through it he revealed his glory. So what does this sign tell us? It tells us what Jesus offers. It tells us who Jesus is, and it tells us how we respond to him. First of all, it tells us what Jesus offers. Weddings are big deals. Remember Dale and Emma's wedding? That was a pretty big deal. Weddings are big deals now. They were bigger deals even than in Jesus' day. At a wedding then, a whole village would gather together. If there were two families uh, being joined together through a wedding, uh, they would get, two villages would gather and come together. Celebrations would last for seven days, seven days of feasting and partying. At this celebration, something has gone horribly wrong. Just a couple of days in, and already the wine has run out. Mary, Jesus' mother, is aware of what has happened. There's probably a little clue there that she was a friend of the groom's family. She was on the inside track and she knew what was really going on. Some stone jars standing nearby, they're empty. Jesus asked that they be filled with water. When the water is tasted, it's discovered it has turned to wine. 800 bottles worth of wine. More than enough for the celebration to continue. This is Jesus' first miracle. This is his miraculous sign. This is where he reveals his glory to a watching world. This is where he tells us what he is about. But just think for a moment what is Jesus about? This isn't a miracle of healing though Jesus is a healer. This isn't a miracle of deliverance, though Jesus is a deliverer. This isn't a miracle of raising the dead or cleansing a leper. This is a different kind of scene setter altogether. What kind of miracle is this? This is a miracle of joy. This is a miracle of transformation. This is a miracle of celebration. Jesus lived in what's known as a shame culture. The worst thing that you could do in his culture in his day was to shame somebody or to embarrass somebody. Lives for loss for the smallest offence. And there could be few greater embarrassments than running out of wine at a wedding. Jesus removes the shame of the situation and replaces it with feasting, replaces it with celebration 
and with partying, turns water into the richest wine. Through this miracle, Jesus declares who he is and what he is about. Jesus would go on to say later in John's Gospel, I have come that you might have life, life in all its fullness, life in all its richness, a life filled with joy, a life filled with laughter. Jesus has come to bring a life of rich wine, abundant wine. Jesus has come to bring a life full of celebration and joy. Jesus has come to offer a taste of the life that God offers. Time and again, the Bible uses um, sensory language to describe what God offers. Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 1 Peter 2. Now you have tasted the grace of God. Ephesians. Grasp, take hold in your innermost self how wide, broad, deep and long is the love of God. Look at the language. Not just know that God is good, but taste that God is good. Not just know that God is gracious, but taste that God is gracious. Not just know that Christ loves us, but take hold, take grasp, uh, hold on tightly in your innermost self, his love. Christians are called in these passages and others like them to go beyond just believing and into experience. The Bible teaches that God is loving, that he's just, that he's merciful, that he is gracious, that he is kind. But we're encouraged to go beyond just knowing these things into experiencing them. There's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting the sweetness of honey. When Jesus turns water into wine, he's inviting those present and us who hear the story to taste God's grace, to taste his mercy, to drink in his love, to know his life and the richness of life and joy that he offers. This miracle declares what Jesus offers. And it tells us who Jesus is. Throughout the Bible, God is described in a whole variety of ways. He's a creator. He's a shepherd. He's a deliverer. He's a father. He's a lord. He's a king. And those who acknowledge him and worship him are known as his people. And for each title or office of God, there's a corresponding descriptor of those who call upon him. He's the creator, we are his creation. He's a shepherd, we're his sheep. There's a deliverer, we're his freed slaves. He's the father, we're the children. He's the lord and king, we're his subjects and servants. There's another lesser known way in which God is described in the Bible. But it's one of the most important and significant. 
He's known as the bridegroom, and his people are known as the bride. And in this miracle, Jesus declares himself to be the heavenly bridegroom. It was the bridegroom's responsibility to ensure that there was enough wine at the wedding. It's the bridegroom's responsibility to ensure that the celebrations go well. And what he would do is he would hire what was known as the master of the banquet. It was his role to practically make sure everything goes well. He fulfills the bridegroom's responsibilities. But at this wedding, the master of the banquet has failed. And so the bridegroom is failing in his responsibility. And what Jesus does is he shows himself to be not just the master of the banquet, but the true heavenly bridegroom. He fulfills all responsibilities and all obligations and fulfills them spectacularly and generously. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. In our reading from Isaiah, God's people are described as desolate and deserted, but God has not abandoned them. We read, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Joy and transformation, that's what Jesus is about. And how does that transformation take place? How does that joy come into being? The answer, through the love of the bridegroom. Through the love of the bridegroom. Jesus' love is transformational. He changes us by loving us. As we grow in our knowledge of him, so we are changed. As we encounter him, so we are transformed. Let's go back to the story of Les Mis. Jean Valjean is released on parole. He's a deeply bitter man of the hardship that he has endured. He travels from village to village. No one will take him in. No one will accept him. He's uh, being forced back into a life of destitution and a life of crime. And then a kindly uh, bishop comes upon him. Bishop Muriel. He invites him into his home. He invites him into his small church. He puts him up for the night. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean awakes and he looks around. And he sees a church full of silver. He steals the silver, he steals the plate, and he goes on the run once more. He's not got too far before he's uh, captured by the police and dragged back before Bishop Muriel. What will the bishop do? Will he condemn him? Will he speak of his guilt? Will he demand his possessions uh, be given back? little spoiler for you. Bishop has mercy upon him. The bishop declares, I poured out these gifts on this poor man. 
In fact, not only these, but I have more for him as well. He takes the uh, valuable candlesticks of the church and he thrusts them into Jean Valjean's arms. He says, these are for you, my son. Police are flabbergasted. There's nothing they can do. They have no reason to hold him. They let Jean Valjean go. Bishop Muriel's final words to Jean Valjean are these. I've saved you for a purpose. I have saved you for God. Live a life worthy of him. Love, generosity, encounter, transformation. Jean Valjean leaves and he is a changed man. He's a transformed man. I won't go into the whole story, but the rest of the story is an outworking of how he uh, seeks to live out of that encounter. He becomes a good man, he becomes in time a wealthy man, he becomes a great man. He seeks to live up to the generosity that he has been shown by Bishop Muriel. And of course, Bishop Muriel is a kind of Christ figure. He reveals to us something of Jesus Christ, something of the generosity of Jesus Christ. Jesus transforms us in the same way as Jean Valjean is transformed by Bishop Muriel. He offers life. He offers joy. He offers a rich life. He pours out his love upon us, and he invites us to taste God's love, to see God's love, to know God's love in our inner being, and in doing so, to be transformed as water is transformed into wine. What does Jesus offer? He offers a rich life. Who is Jesus? He's the heavenly bridegroom who rejoices over his people. And how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, the clue is in the story. What does Mary say to the servants? They don't know what to do. And Mary points to her son Jesus and says, this is my son. Listen to him. At his baptism, God the Father speaks from heaven the same words. This is my son. Listen to him. At the end of this story, verse 11, it says that Jesus revealed his glory. What do the disciples do? We're told they put their trust in him. Did they have all the answers? No. Did they follow him perfectly? No. Did they get it right every time? No. Did they know where he would lead them? No. But they decided from that moment on, they would put their trust in him. They would look to him for their answers. And in him they would find all that they would need. Jesus offers life, life in all its fullness. Jesus is the bridegroom who rejoices over his people. Heaven and earth say, this is our son, listen to him. Let's bow our heads. Father, none of us live 
a life exactly as we would want to. None of us are quite the people we would hope uh, to be. But we rejoice that you do offer us mercy and grace and truth and hope and peace. And Lord, we pray for all of us here today that we would taste and see that you are good, that we would discover more and more of you and the richness of your grace, and that in doing so, we would be transformed. In the name of Christ, amen.